And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 29 of PNR's This Old Marketing. Hey, have you reviewed the podcast yet? If not, we want to hear from you. Just plug in your phone, wait for iTunes to come up, and then get to our podcast and let the world know what you think. And if you want to get the podcast days ahead of when we post it on the website, we hope you'll consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher. And if you don't have a reason to use your laptop on a Saturday, swing on over to thisoldmarketing.com every single Saturday. And while everybody else in your house is watching House Hunters International or This Old Wives of Beverly Hills or New York or whatever, you can listen to us. You'll also find the show notes there and general awesome stuff that we talk about. Anyway, and also always pleased to welcome my good, good friend from Cleveland, Ohio. Please welcome this Stanley Cup of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Did you see my Kings? My Kings are in the finals. I, I can't believe it. And I'm not a big hockey fan, but I'm happy for you. And you sound you sound rather it's, light and fluffy today. I mean, like, what's I what am light going and fluffy. on, man? It's, it's a something good day. Must, it's must a good, good day. You had, you had, well, no? you know. Coming off a bit of a high of the executive forum of last week, we had a great time in San Francisco. That was just awesome. It was funny when I got off the plane coming home on uh, Friday night. Uh, my wife was tired; she was she had been working, and I was coming home and and uh, I was like, "Do you, uh, would you like me to make dinner for you? And would you like me to cook?" And she's like, "Wait a minute, aren't you tired?" And I'm like, "No, I'm all high on coming <laughs> off the executive forum. I had a great time. Let's make dinner. Let's cook. Let's go." Well, the one thing that we do know from that, you're right, it was fantastic. That we know we're going to do it again, and we're actually, yeah, you know, we're brainstorming about doing one. Uh, can I even say it? I think we're going to do one in Europe. Which would be really cool. That's fantastic. But that's only if you I approve. I'm excited about that. It's only yeah. I well, I wholeheartedly approve because it was it was just a fun blast. It was candid, uh, intimate. It was interesting. It was at times shocking. It was I mean just it to put that many thought leaders of content marketing into a room on the practitioner side. You know, actual brands that are doing this and living this every single day was just incredibly. And powerful. the fact that. They really did. I mean, we told everybody, please don't tweet, please don't share, and everybody. I mean, it, it's. A, I've never been to an event where you're trying to put down sharing, and we did, and nobody said a peep, and it was liberating. I think for for everyone. There. It really was. It was you know basically everybody was present for the two days, and it was just a wonderful way to spend two days pausing, thinking about big things, trying to figure out and solve content marketing problems that are really happening. It was just, it was fantastic. And just for everyone who's listening, we've got some reports coming out. First, we'll share that with the executive forum attendees first. But after that, we're going to, we're going to release it and, and some really amazing insight. We do. We do. I'm actually actively working on the synthesis of all that came out of the two days, and that'll be coming out in the next few weeks here. And then um, Michelle Lynn, um, the wonderful Michelle Lynn, is actually working on a synthesis of the research that we conducted to prep up and get ready for the executive forum. So lots of great insights, questions, and stuff coming out from that. Fantastic. Well, we probably need to get yeah. onto the show, even though I'd love we to talk about get... executive forum for another hour. I know. I know. I know. But we had a bit, it was a big news week. It was a uh, lot. Lots of news this week, starting with dun, 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 the famous um, Mary Meeker Internet Trends Report came out, and this is something, I don't know how long you've been reading this, dude, but I have been reading the Meeker Report 
well, since she was Morgan Stanley, and back in the late '90s, even with the dot com, I mean, it was it was it was required reading for all of us consultants who were helping the dot com boom go boom. Um, and uh, now she's with Kleiner Perkins, of course, and the report is just as good and expansive as ever. Did you? I mean, did you get a chance to review and take a well, look at some of the stuff? There's like in there? 185 slides, so I, yeah, I it's really, big. I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot of content. I, could, I was overwhelmed, and of course, there's more than just media in there. There's there, there's there, she talks about healthcare and government and basically technology trends that you can think of in any industry. It's really fantastic stuff. And I guess my, I wanted to kind of turn it back on you for a second. Cause I know, you know, you've been reading her reports for quite some time. Do you have, is there one big thing? Like if you were going into a client right now, after reading and engaging in this report that you'd say, look, you've got to do this differently or, or take a look at, at this opportunity. Is, is there one thing that hit you? Well, there was a few things that hit me. I'm not sure that there's. I have a good answer for you in terms of what synth, you know what I've been able to synthesize from all of the you know to pull really any meaning out of it for a specific client. I mean, some of the big stuff that came out of it the the growth of mobile, which I you know we've all felt right, but now you know mobile usage, as they found out, now accounts for 25 percent of all web traffic. I mean, that's up from 14 percent just a year ago. I mean, that's that's just huge. How mobile has become. You know, this whole mobile first thing is, you know, you kind of go, yeah, okay, but I still sit at my desk a lot. But really, mobile from a content perspective and the way that people are consuming content, and especially, by the way, in the developing nations, right? So, you know, where, you know, like we look at Africa and Asia, where it represents even a bigger significant portions of that, where it's really just leapfrogged the entire PC movement altogether, and people are just going right to smartphones. Um, And I think the other thing that really jumped out at me was this idea, and this is especially maybe US-centric, but it was this idea of how, excuse me, video has really just, you know, uh, grown on the mobile, uh, 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 on the mobile platform, and people are dual screening now, right? So they're saying that 84% of American mobile users are now using their device watching movies or, or video rather while they're watching TV. So they're they're looking at more content than ever, dual screening, watching stuff, and that's that's just well. The, what was interesting, and I forgot what slide it was on, but it was the one where uh, the remote control of the future, where you're basically oh, like I'm yeah, gonna pick what's exactly. what's hot right yeah. now, what's hot in my area, you know. I mean, that's fascinating, and we're not too far away from that. Where that's how we're going to view no, television, yeah. where you're not going to go to the guide. I mean, they show the, the representative TV guide against you know what it's going to be. And it's going to be a socially motivated choice of based on your preferences, your history, and what your friends are doing. That's exactly right. Well, I don't know that we'll do it, but our kids will do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think that you know you and I are going to be stuck with our remote control as we've always. I'm, try- I'm fighting. I mean, tonight, tonight too is is you know Jack's back with 24, right? and I'm fighting against watching it. Just I I just don't want to do it. I don't want to give it, and I know I'm going to be sitting there watching him. Say I, London. I well, I will be. I'll be eyes glued to the TV watching, catching up on Game of Thrones. Oh, so very, there you very have nice. It. No, so I guess I guess yeah. a couple things that that I took away: the mobile, so mobile usage versus advertising spend, and print usage versus advertising spend are exact opposites in 2013. I yeah. just thought that was amazing. So just to so they have the stats. So 20% usage of mobile overall time spent, 20% is spent with mobile. 
4% of total ad dollars go to that. And then in print, 5% time spent in print and 19% of advertising spend. It just, I mean, that's yeah. mind boggling. I guess there's a couple things I take it, away from it is, and even the Neiman, um, you know, there's a, a companion Neiman article, Neiman Journalism Lab article that you have with us that, that points this out really well that says maybe print's just a more ad-friendly environment. And, of course, that's true. And, and I guess my, my, t- my take is when I look at this is mobile that far behind? Are, are we that far behind from an advertising standpoint to move those dollars from TV and from display internet into mobile? Or is it just really hard to find good advertising placement on mobile? And I think, that, I think it's, it's probably a combination of both, but I think it's really hard to advertise on mobile. It's just not set up. It really it's, is. And we talked about that. I mean, even look at Google AdWords or look at your native advertising. You don't, like, if you go to Google AdWords, you could be seeing seven, eight, ten ads, uh, at, you know, in a five-second period of time. Well, you probably see one at most on a mobile device, maybe two. So. Right. Well, and mobile tends to be more task-oriented, like you're trying to do something on mobile, right? You are not, it is less the kind of, serendipitous oh, i'm going to click on this ad and just go to you know you, you, it's like it's distracting even in the distraction of the task right so you're so much more unlikely to actually take away from the time that you're doing the thing that you're trying to do find a restaurant surf go to a game you know or whatever you're trying to do on mobile to actually click on it i i, I agree with you wholeheartedly i don't think i think a big reason that that you know that that gap exists is because people are just frustrated with mobile as a platform. I think, interestingly enough, and where content marketing feeds into this um, is, I think content is starting to have an effect here, where you know, especially on the owned media platforms, where money is starting. You know, it's still a very small percentage, I suspect, but where owned media is becoming a big uh, a big you know focus, as well as the idea of native advertising, ding, 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 I get the prize this week. Um, and all of those things start to come out. I think you're going to even start to see, unless they change the methodology for measuring this, I think you're going to start to see advertising dollars really start to really, you know, a lot of different gaps in interesting, like mobile, for example, where I might focus on content rather than advertising, or print, where I might focus on content rather than you know than a standard print ad, or even the internet, you know, web, uh, where I might focus on an owned property like a blog instead of placing banner ads. I think you're going to start to see those gaps eat well, widen. There's, even there's two thoughts. It's a great, it's great insight. I guess the the thoughts that I have is when you look, at, and we'll put this this chart obviously in the uh, in the show notes. But maybe in the future, instead of seeing time spent versus ad spend, maybe there's an own spent next to it. Could be, right? Uh, why not? But you're spending on print versus internet and mobile. That could be something. The second thing is, if I'm buying native advertising, where does that go? Because technically, right. technically, think, it could go. Question, ag- well, technically, it that, could yeah. go against TV, internet, and mobile simultaneously. Right. So where yeah. does it go? Yeah, I mean that's the idea. Yeah, it's it's you know we talked about this a little bit last week. This idea of converged media, right, where you've got earned, owned, and paid really moving into a very blurry place of where would you stick it in the bucket, right? You know, how do you actually account for the payment of that? Um, you know, when I create a piece of content on an owned platform, it does very well. 
and then ultimately I pay for the promotion of it elsewhere, and that might earn me a you know a placement on a newspaper article or a TV you know news coverage or something like that. Where does where where does the you know when they go well where did you budget from that? I don't know. I just put money at it. Yeah. I don't know whether it came from PR or advertising or demand generation or whatever. This is I, I think you know the the shift will ultimately. But that's get there. that's where this. As the way that we look at this time spent versus ad spending, it has to change. I think the Mary Meekers of the world to. have to come out and say, look, it's not that black and white anymore. You don't just say, okay, there's a bunch of channels out there and there's a bunch of big corporations spending money against those channels to rent the audience. It's not the way it is anymore. I mean, we, yeah. So, if, yeah. I mean, advertising is changing, right? I mean, even 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 within that one you're bucket, right. advertising is changing, and so I think you're absolutely right that that at some point they have to recognize the fact that you know the idea of paid media is not just advertising, but it goes into you know building our own you know building our own property and content and and the money that gets spent in that. So I mean, I know we want to go on to the next news article, but the two quick things that I got out of this is the boom in online education. And I think because of that, there is an opportunity for brands to really take a, a stance in online education. And we actually, at Content Marketing World this year, uh, we have the representative from Schneider Electric, who is, they've done amazing things with their university. Uh, and I think that's the type of thing that I think we're going to see more of because people are completely accepting of online education. Uh, as as a valid means to continue your education on in any profession. And the second thing was, which I just thought was interesting, that 50% of social penetration occurs up to nine hours and then basically dies off from there when you share a social post. And they were, of course, that's when right. we were talking about BuzzFeed and a couple other things. And I was just thinking, okay, that's the truth, right? We know that, okay, we share something out, it either gets shared, it goes on and on. But I think maybe... As marketers, we should look at how we are remarketing that post throughout the rest of the week, month, year, and not just say, oh, we got a new piece of content, we're going to promote it on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, and then it's done. And I think that's what most businesses do instead of looking at, oh, okay, here's a post and here's the social sharing editorial or calendar that we're going to use so that we can reposition that all, you know, for a, for a long, long time, instead of just that one piece in history. So, well, again, and it's not even just social posts, right? I mean, how many times do we see you know B two B brands launching something expensive like a white paper or a research you know study or something like that? They promote it for a week and then forget about it. It's gone, right? It's like no, it's it, it, this is a piece of content that it, and if it deserved your time to actually think about for a while, this is a piece of valuable content that deserves you know, not only promotion for the next week and then move on to the next quote-unquote campaign, but it deserves, you know, frequent, you know, promotion and it deserves frequent sharing and it deserves the ability to last, you know, a lot longer than just the the week that, you know, how many times do I talk to a business where they go, we don't have anything to talk about because we kind of ran our, you know, we, we ran out of stuff to talk about. It's like, no, you didn't. You just you all you did was you you blogged for two months and now you feel like you're out of topics. Yeah. Go back, you Let's know. Start I, talking I just again. think that we almost spend so much time on the creation, and as well we should the creation part of content, and we just don't think a little bit out of the box on distribution. It's almost like oh, we got the email right. and we yes. got the social channels and we got a little bit of paid, and then we're on to something else. And I'm like, boy, if 
we should be spending the majority of our time on the distribu distribution of that content, and, and we're not doing it, and I think it's a missed opportunity. That's right. And, and it's that, you know what it is, it's the campaign mindset, you know, and this is, you know, this is not necessarily the fault of marketers. We've been trained classically to think in campaigns in short, iterative loops. So we think like projects, right? So it's this idea of putting out content and then we, we got to be working on something new, have to be working on something new. If we're not working on something new, then it's, you know, it's like, we got to stop that thinking and think, you know, wider, longer term and a, you know, a continuous effort. I well, and then, and then to, just to finish this up, I just talked, I had an interview this afternoon and we were talking about repackaging and I said, you need to plan for repackaging and that's why I love to do it in an editorial calendar where you, let's say it's a blog post, you have the blog post, you have your, your audience or your persona that you're targeting, you have your keywords, all that stuff that would go in an editorial calendar and then at the end you have the blog to blank. So what is that blog post connected to or what are you planning to connect that to as part of right. an ongoing series? Does it go to a, a to an ebook? Does it go to a white paper? Does it go to a research report? Does it go to a podcast like we're doing? Does it go to a book? I mean, I think at least look in it and not all, you know, pieces of content can connect to another piece of content, but I think if you at least think of it that way, you'll you'll start to see there's opportunities for all kinds of content and reuse of content. But you don't have to think about, oh, we had a great, this went viral. How do we keep using it? We've already planned for it, so we're just a little bit smarter about the strategy. There well you go. Said. Well said. All right. Well, that, and, but, you know, so if, if we didn't say it enough, go read the Mary Meeker report. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. Okay, so on to the next story. And Condé Nast has made a little bit of news. Condé Nast, the publisher of Vogue magazine um, and the New Yorker magazine, apparently asked its editors and publishers to uh, look at this 4,000-word document that they're calling the Magna Carta of Native Advertising, which I don't, I'm going to whistle jokes <laughs> that I've got about the Magna, about the Magna Carta. But, but okay, so it's the Magna Carta of Native Advertising. Um, and interesting because I think they actually came out and said they're, they're doing it, which is some publishers haven't actually done anything about this, as we have talked about a lot. Um, and they said basically they're going to set certain standards and practices around legal privacy, um, you know, how they're going to use consumer data, what they're going to do uh, around guidelines about using logo. For example, they say that neither the editors nor the magazine's logo will appear in a native ads. Um, and, I don't know. I, I want to get your take on it coming from the publisher side, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how much of this stays intact over, you know, because it's easy to sort of set out them as the Magna Carta creators <laughs> also discovered. It's easy to say what should be the law today, but it's very hard to say what the law should be tomorrow. So, I mean, what did you think? Well, the one thing that I can't get over is this is not new. I mean, we talk about it all the time. And it's almost like, oh my gosh, big disruption, we need a plan of action. Now, technically, if you're a publisher, you should... You should have already well, figured no, no, this no. out? You should have had a plan, and because of the additional disrupt, basically the additional push of clients to want to do this, and the additional you know, revenue challenges that make publishers more open to doing native advertising, you would have taken your traditional advertorial guidelines document and adjusted it years ago 
Why are why are we talking about this? this is so I, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get why we're talking about it. Like it's so new. And it's like we've been doing advertorials for a hundred plus years, and everybody says this is brand new. Okay, that that aside, here's here's uh, how do you really oh, feel God, about I it? I just don't get it. Like it's it's so brand new. All right. So basically, right. from what I'm gathering from reading this article, they're saying that uh, editors of the publication and and no uh, and logos will not appear in native advertising from Condé Nast. So Condé Nast Media Group right. puts together yeah. the ads and they can't use the pictures of the editors or the logos. Um, so great. <laughs> I'm glad that they're setting some, <laughs> some standards <laughs> for it. There's probably more to it. Than, sure, I hope there's more I'm, to I'm it. I'm sure than there that. is. Actually, <laughs> right. I'd love to get my hands on it. I mean, I would, that's oh, what I, when really I saw the article... Yeah. I was hoping oh, for a link like, too. Give it, give it to me. Let me see it. Let's 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 give it. You know what? They should here. We should call them. They should give it to the industry, and we can all come together and build a standards document together. How about that? I think I think you should call Anna Wintour at Vogue and say, "Look, I know I loved you in Devil Wears Prada, <laughs> um, and <laughs> and you would you just hand over this four thousand word." Magna Carta of ad- native advertising. Let me know how that turns out for you, Jim. Yeah, I'm going to text her right now see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you should. A tweeter. Just no, tweeter. This is, I, so yeah. this is the, the funny part. So I'm reading through this, and then the, they get, you get the one from Time. Um, and so so Norm, Norm from, right. from Time, yeah. Chief Content Officer of Time, says, we're going to handle it on a case-by-case basis. Really? <laughs> like, yeah. really? Is that Okay. I, I can tell you right now, the sales team not gonna like that. They need to go <laughs> yeah, exactly. in and really know. And I can tell you right now, creative not gonna like that either. If you're gonna yeah. scale native advertising the way that BuzzFeed scales it, you better have some guidelines, at least as suggestions, so that yeah. so that the salespeople <laughs> know where the line is and where they can't cross. Because the because if it's a salesperson. I mean, I'm a former salesperson, and I am a salesperson, so I, I can absolutely say this. You will try to get whatever you can, and you will try to take it as far as you can. And if you don't give them and say, hey, somebody's got to protect the brand, somebody's got to protect the audience a little bit, it, it's just, it could be all kinds of havoc. So, I don't yeah. know. You got anything else on this one? No, I think I think you said it. I think you said it. No, no, it's great stuff. I think you. I think you. I think you nailed it perfectly. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> moving on. Inter- speaking of publishing, um, this comes from Digiday, uh, and don't worry, Digiday, we're 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 <laughs> we we. Uh, we, we liked we, Digiday. We it was just the thing like, last we loved week. Digiday. That was the it was just that. Yeah. And uh, anyway, the article is where does brand content go next? Um, and it talks about a guy by the name of John Shankman, who I've known only through, well, I don't know him personally, but I know the all, which was a, a publishing uh, online thing that he ran for a long time. And he's bootstrapping his own new venture called Hashtag Labs. I got to say, I kind of like the name. Um, who says basically the company is going to act as both a production studio for branded media, a consultancy for publishers looking to bone up on everything from understanding how programmatic ad works to implementing a native advertising strategy, which we would all assume is a content marketing strategy from the branded content uh, agency type 
publisher perspective. Um, as Shankman said, he was a quote, it's a talent agency uh, for brands that want to be publishers. And then he goes on to, and the one quote that I love that he said that just reminded me so much of you, and the reason I pulled it for this week and I wanted to get your take on it was when he said, he, he compared Coca-Cola and he said, Coca-Cola used to buy advertising on American Idol. Now they'll just make American Idol. And I thought this goes right in line with what you're talking about, where brands are going to, you know, buy content or make content and just become media companies. And I thought this was—I love the article. I, 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 I think it's a really interesting trend on the agency side. We've talked about that before, and I think they'll be extraordinarily successful. Well, I got to tell you, this uh, this John Shankman—he's he, one really smart dude because <laughs> we, yeah. you and I, have been talking about like it's uh, this could have come from content marketing institute in a lot of in a lot of ways uh, maybe there's 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 two things first of all you're right and if people that don't see this coming where uh the big brands are going to go fund this stuff because i love it he says coca-cola will just work with the production t- company because they are the media company they have the distribution right. so i mean coca-cola exactly. has 82.9 million facebook fans has as many as most networks do has the audience of where we talk about this with red bull all the time Red Bull doesn't have to advertising. They do because they're trying to accomplish other goals. So the, the one th- that I thought that was interesting. And the one thing that's good, uh, it wouldn't breaking, they're talking about breaking bad. It wouldn't make a difference if AMC made it or BMW. And, uh, and then the right. question was a brand would finance a show about a sadistic drug dealer. And then he says in 20 to 30, in 20 to yeah. 30 years. Yeah. You know yeah. what? <clears throat> that's too yeah, long. Right. Uh, in five years yeah. or less. It, 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 I would agree. If, it, if not before. And the one thing I wanted to get your take on. Well, it's yeah. already happening. It's already happening, right? Chipotle is going to make that, that uh, you know, I, don't, I think it's four episodes or six episodes of the, the, the comedy show about, you know, the, the processing, the meat processing and food and all that. I think that's exactly it. I mean, I, I, obviously I haven't seen the show yet. I don't know how edgy it's going to be, but it sounds pretty edgy. Yeah, I, exactly. And I think that basically it's this whole idea in this article about if you're a drug dealer that – uh, you know, BMW wouldn't want to touch it. I, I don't, I think that if we look at the needs of the audience and the, and the specific audience we're trying to attract, uh, we don't necessarily, no necessarily say this is not necessarily in line with the vision of the company. I think we can look a little bit outside of that and say, yeah, it does. And this, this is in line because we want to, you know, uh, you know, be more aggressive or assertive or think differently about things or whatever. So I think, I think it gives almost creative license to do a little bit more than you would normally do in a sponsorship. Well, I think one of the things that makes that possible, quite frankly, is, you know, and when we start looking at the fragmentation of media, you know, we often think about, wow, what a bummer it is that audiences are getting smaller across individual channels. But in many ways, that's a double-edged sword, right? We can actually take advantage of, a brand can take advantage of the fact that, you know what, we're going to try this little thing and it's going to be edgy and interesting and weird. And we're going to try it on a channel that doesn't have a lot of audience, doesn't have a lot of distribution, doesn't have a lot of viewership, and we're going to try it. And if it works there, then we'll move it up. Then we can move it up to cable TV, or we can move it up to broadcast TV, or we can move it up to our website, or you know whatever they want to do. The fragmentation of audiences works both ways. You know, it's it's harder to reach them, but it also gives us the ability to experiment in smaller ways than we used. Okay, to. I got a totally off thought. It has nothing to do with content marketing, but I gotta share it because I just read the article. Have you? Do you know Lolly Wally Doodle? Have you heard of them? 
I do not. Lolly Wally no. Doodle that was featured on the cover of Ink Magazine, and I read the article. And it's a kids' clothing um, manufacturer. And they, the whole article was on how they cracked the code of Facebook. And this is where I thought it was interesting. And this could be a content play, and this is why I'm making the link. So they make all kinds of really adorable clothes, handmade, whatever. They, they make a, a beta. They made one outfit, and they put it on Facebook, and they see, they track the orders and see how it does. And it goes through a whole cycle. And then they say, okay, well, how did it do? And if it did really well compared to whatever algorithm they have, they go into mass production with it. But they've only created one. And then they just see how it goes. And then they'll, you know, let's say that people buy 100 of them, they'll make 100, and then basically they'll end that product line and then go on to another one. But I think that from, I was just fascinated by it because they said they sell more clothing on, on Facebook than any other manufacturer in the world. Well, this goes, I mean, this goes right to, I don't know whether it was three shows ago or four shows ago where we were talking about how we often talk about me, uh, brands becoming media companies. But, you know, just like we, you know, just like, and on the show, we actually mentioned Copyblogger, you know, where media companies can become product companies. And it's not just the advent of the technology that enables us to distribute media more fluidly. It's also the advent of the technology that enables us to produce products more fluidly. And so media companies where it used to be a real bear to create one product or a hundred products versus going into mass production of millions. Now it's a lot easier. 3d printing is coming, you know, all of this, you know, commoditized production is coming or is here. And so it's a lot easier for a media company now to say, you know what? Let's try you know this this product and see if we can make a T-shirt out of it, or make a a doll, or a, make make a book, or a, you know whatever. And and if it works, put it into mass production and and sell it. It's I I think it's fascinating. Uh, so I, yeah, I, just, I don't know what made me think of the, about that, but yeah, I just think that there's there's an opportunity there because you can get such instantaneous feedback. You don't have to spend so much money on your content. You could get pretty quick feedback and then say, okay, we're going to double down on this one. So. No right. doubt about it. Well, and then here's the flip side, right? So we talked about this extension of brands um, as publishers where this guy, we like it. It's really smart. He's going out and setting up a studio. But then there's the flip side. So Steve Sachs, who's the CEO of OneSpot, um, this comes from CMO.com, an article. He says, brands as publishers, here's a reality check. And I don't think either of us will disagree with this, although I won't assume that for you, but I, I don't think we'll disagree where he basically says, look, we've been hearing about brands becoming publishers for several years. It's true. Many brands have taken on the behaviors and practices of that traditionally fall within the domain of being a media company. But he's a little more than just a little concerned about how low that bar has been set. And he basically concludes that if brands are actually going to do this, they need to actually really take it seriously, right, and talk about – building their audience, putting out great content, monetizing it, as he says. Um, I don't know. What did you – before I before I jumped to too many conclusions, no, did you I, agree I, with I mean, what he ultimately I, concluded? I do agree. I actually think that most of the focus that we've seen and hear from and talk to our clients about is on oh, how do we create this fantastic content. And they almost jumped to content before figuring out, okay, well, we need a well-rounded strategy and what – uh, Mr. Sachs goes through here is saying, well, there's three aspects, right? Creating outstanding content, developing, engaging, valuable audiences, and then three, monetizing those properties. I mean, we, we could argue yeah. that there are a couple other steps in there, but honestly, that, <laughs> that's publishing. 
If you get those three, yeah, if you get those three right, you're doing pretty and yeah, darn so, good. So okay, well, I mean, hopefully you're creating the content. You have some idea of how you're going to ultimately monetize the properties. Are you going to generate more sales? Is this a cost savings initiative? Are you trying to create better customers in some way? You know what? What's the deal there? And then that means that if you're going to do that at all, you better have some kind of a valuable audience. I mean, I. I'm I'm with it. Is there? Did you pick out something that just didn't make sense in this, or is it all all the way? No, I didn't. I you know the, what what I guess what struck me was sort of this. The, it was what struck me was the dichotomy of of looking at this the the previous article that we just talked about, which basically talks in glowing terms about how brands you know can become media companies and use you know use it to their advantage to this sort of splash of cold water if you will which basically goes you know what you kind of suck at it and so it's that was the really interesting thing to me so i think it it, the, the interesting thing to me was to read both articles together and go there is an opportunity there but the reality isn't there yet you know as we discovered very you know uh in no uncertain terms during executive forum last week we're a long way from brands really having a good handle on this content thing and 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 how they actually get really adept at creating themselves you know i mean we talk about this all the time with clients which is it's not enough to just act like a publisher you've got to be a publisher right that means restructuring giving permission to fail having the ability to build, develop audiences monetize that content having a strategy all the things that we talk about which is actually walking the walk not just talking well, the well talk. you say this all the time i mean and if you pull if you're in an organization and you pull the lever called content marketing how does it affect the business? I mean, right. and it's surprising that 90% of the people we talk to don't know. That's what's right. scary about it. That's and that's right. when people say that we're, you know, content marketing is, is um, well entrenched in companies. Well, content creation is, but the practice of content right. marketing is not. Market is not. That's right. It's such a great way to think about it, too. Yeah. It's, that, that's well, that's exactly just right. a simplified way to do it. Because I, I mean, you. You probably say it in your own way, but I actually say, hey, okay, you're going to go in. You're talking to the CMO. You just pulled the lever. You just turned the on switch to content marketing. It's like, how's the business different? If you can't sell that to your CMO, good luck. Like you actually, like you do yeah. this great in, in managing content marketing where you laid out the, uh, uh, the business, what do you call it? The business objective, the, oh, I forgot what you call it. Yeah. Well, there's the business plan, and then there's the plan of innovation, right? So, which is the, the you know the business the, the basically making your business business case, case for thank you. marketing make which, the business yeah, case, yeah, and that yeah. and you have to make that business case, and you have to tell your own little story to get that budget flow it in, and we've heard that in yeah, executive exactly. forum. I mean, these are the leading yeah. uh, some of the leading content marketing experts from some of the largest brands in the world, and they are still having a challenge talking to their CMO and getting buy in for more budget. I, it's hard to believe even, yep. but it's true. And how big, and how big measurement still oh, is in this. That was it. I mean, Everybody, you know, not measurement you know. ever. They want, yeah. they want the, the, the Holy grail measurement. And I don't know if there is one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, moving on, uh, next story, uh, a really interesting, another interesting pair of stories. Um, 
So this comes down to, I mean, it's speaking of making a business case, looking at competitive analysis. Um, Pick two articles here. One was from Search Engine Journal, um, which was titled Spotting Your Competitors Engaging Content. And this is by a guy by the name of, I'm going to I'm going to butcher this guy's name, so my apologies in advance, Razvan Gavrilas. Um, so hopefully that's at least close. And what he basically says is, look, content marketing is hot, content is hot, we get that. We need to be able to look at our competitors and understand where their content is working and where it's not. And he actually walks through very search-centric look, but nonetheless goes through a, a, a methodology of how to look at competing site content and determine the engagement level, and at least from a social shares and sort of readability and all of that kind of perspective. I liked it. I liked this article because I think it's an interesting exercise. Um, and then sort of on the flip side, not terribly on the flip side, not, you know, diametrically opposed or anything, but Christopher Penn, who uh, is a friend and family of the uh, of the show, certainly, and of CMI, we know Christopher well, he wrote on his blog wondering if competitive analysis even matters. Um, and he goes on talking through how competitive analysis, looking at competitors, is really a secondary priority and something to do only after you've improved yourself. And here, when I was reading his article, and I don't even know that, again, he would disagree with me that much, but he actually comes down to three points, and he says, one, it doesn't matter what our competitors are doing if the product or service is terrible or it has an unpleasant experience. It doesn't matter what our competitors are doing if our employees hate working for, with us. And it doesn't matter what our competitors are doing if we are unprofitable. And I get what he's saying, but I want to make sure that, you know, that my takeaway from this is that... We need to make sure that, that, that we look at competitive analysis as a context, not as a prerequisite. And what I mean by that is it, it does matter, actually, what our competitors are doing if the product is terrible or the service is unpleasant. I mean, think about every bad product that owns a market, your cable company, as an example, right? Or, you know, in some cases, like it or not, or disagree with me or not, Microsoft products, or the kinds of products that basically have big market share, but themselves aren't great. Are they, you know, does it not matter what their competitors are doing if their product is terrible, yet they still, yes, it does matter because there may be an upstart competitor that's quite frankly about to drink their milkshake. So they need to understand at least the context. So competitive analysis in that situation is a context we need to lay over what we look at from competition because if for no other reason we need to understand what competitors are doing so that we know how to be different than that, right? And that's uh, uh, that's the uh, a huge thing. So I I'm a big believer in competitive analysis if for if for the only reason tend to look at what we not you know what we shouldn't be doing. Now, as you were talking, all I could think about was Don Schultz and his book Integrated Marketing Communications. And for those that don't know, Don Schultz is is the godfather of integrated marketing, and you should read Integrated Marketing Communications as a as a book. It's a textbook, but man, is it valuable? Oh, it's a yeah, it's, it's a requirement. requirement. You have That's to a read requirement it. But the, that you, yeah, but the yeah. one thing, I mean, this, he says it right at the start, and he said it in many different things. But he says your competition can do everything that you do exactly the same today, except for how you communicate. That's and, exactly right. And to your point, because you and I were talking beforehand about this article. And, but when you, when you put it the way that you did it about creating a differentiating value, I think that's why we have to do it because we have to make sure at all costs that we're telling a different story. 
Absolutely. It's the third leg on the stool, right? I mean, we look at what we're saying, we look at what our competitors are saying, and we look at what the world is saying or saying or looking for. And all of those things give us the ability to triangulate a message or a communication strategy or a content strategy, quite frankly, that differentiates us, that basically moves away from the competition and toward what the world really wants to hear. And that's that's a huge that's a huge piece of it. And again, I don't think Chris would disagree with any of that. I don't think you'd I but I just want to make sure that it, it it was something that stood out to me and I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to call it out. Another book, by the way, uh and I think she's gonna owe me like a really nice steak dinner by the number of times I, I, I pimp her book. Um it's a book by called Different by Young Me Moon, who's a Harvard business reporter. Probably the best business book I've read really? in ten years. Just I have not read it yet. I oh, guess just I've a, got a I know you oh, mentioned it before. Book. I have it's to read it. It's such a great book. It's a fantastic book, and it's a fast read. And she's a wonderful writer. And it's just a it's well, you know, on that book. one, you know, Nancy Duarte, who spoke at Executive Forum, said, "What was the one she said? She yeah. said Creativity Inc. The book Creativity yeah, was Inc. the book that book. she said yep. has just another changed her book. thinking on, yep. on how she she looks at content. It's a it's a it's a great so, book. It's a great right. book. Well, speaking of great content, we have some great content to talk about from our wonderful, amazing. Awesome. Yes, sponsor. yes. Once again, this old marketing is being sponsored by Emma, and we love Emma, the email marketing company for the modern brand. And if you haven't been to Emma recently, you've got to look and make sure they've got all these mobile responsive templates, which is, of course, our conversations on mobile. Uh, really, really important stuff social integration tools, and again, the all important concierge services. So if you need to get set up in email marketing, make sure you check out Emma at myemma.com. But specifically, we're promoting this really cool, we haven't decided whether it's an ebook or an, I think it's an infographic is probably a better way to put it, called 18 Email Stats Every Marketer Needs to Know. I've found it incredibly valuable. If you haven't checked it out by now, shame on you. You have to go do that now. And you can check it out directly at bit.ly, bit.ly.com slash email dash pnr that's bitly.com slash email dash pnr all lowercase and you can check that out today and once again big big thanks to emma for sponsoring uh, this old marketing i don't know what we would do without them so truly appreciate it so wonderful i think we want to call it an e-infographic book oh yeah just, that's I it just made that up oh we're so gonna have to change the next content marketing book. research project that said how many of you are doing e-infographic yeah. books e-infographic <laughs> books yeah exactly god almighty <laughs> all right it is now time for our favorite part of the show the rants and rave section of the show where joe and i take a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave and talk about something that's really bugging us um uh you know so because i'm doing the this old marketing i'm gonna go first um, and I have a rave this week, um, and it's a, a bit of a bittersweet uh, rave for me uh, because it's someone, Maya Angelou, uh, who I hope most of you know, and if you don't, shame on you, go find out uh, about Maya Angelou, um, died uh, this week, this last week, and she was a huge influence on me from the time that I was in college doing English literature studies, um, and just I've read my Angelou. Um, I know why the caged bird sings. Um, all of that is just uh, wonderful. But but talk about a giant, someone who had a template for a life well lived. I mean, she was a poetess, uh, an activist, a wife, mother. She was a global activist. 
um, an author, an actress, a director, a singer. She was an amazing singer. A lot of people don't know that. Award-winning uh, a professor. She was a professor in college. I mean, just talk about all of the things that I, you know, I name those jobs and I go, I aspire to any one of them. And she did all of them with finesse, artistry, beauty, um, and just, you know, pure skill. You know, I would watch her speak as a kid. I would watch her, you know, every every once in a while she would be on TV and I would just, I would marvel at, she would just say simple things and just putting sentences together. It sounded like somebody making poetry. Um, and she is truly going to be missed and truly a giant of, of content, of creation, of, of the kind of thing in the life that at least I aspire to. Um, and one of the quotes that she said uh, a lot and sort of still sits with me, and it's in many of the presentations I give even to this day, is that she says, you know, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I absolutely operate from that uh, every time I every time I work with a client, every time I work with an audience, every time I work with a workshop, it is a hugely important thing. And she made me feel great. And so uh, for that, I thank Maya Angelou, and, and, uh, and that is my right that's, for this That's week. fantastic. I think that if anybody hasn't, doesn't have an understanding of what she accomplished uh, and how many people she affected, just you know, go and check out her, her biography at some point. Just, just simply yeah, fantastic. It's amazing. Um, yeah. I, have, uh, I have a quick, quick rant and a quick rave. Um, and I just, I just Excellent. have to, You know that I, I'm a big fan of the movie Frozen, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, as I was playing the Frozen. Yeah, let, let it, it go, Joe. Yeah, let, let it go, go. during uh, Executive go. Forum quite a bit. That, that was laughs for all, right? Um, yes, but it I was. was uh, so I, I was. At, I don't movie. know what I was reading today, but I was at the bottom, and, and of course, the the recommendation engine knows me really well and said the ten things that you don't know about Frozen that you need to know. And I'm like, oh my gosh, uh oh, they oh, know, no. and I have to go. So I go and I click on it, and it goes to Answers.com. Of course, it's the ten things you need to know. You know that there's 55 slides. The 55 oh slides to get to the 10 things. And it says, number one, no Hans way. Christian Andersen, and then it goes to the next slide. And so everyone had six or seven or eight slides associated with it, and they, it was builds oh on top God. of each one. And I know why they're doing it. They're doing it to get ad impressions. For page, I'm yeah, like, right. come on. So I'm just like, I, I only got to like three. I said, I was all, I was all upset. So now I'm like, you know, I still want to know, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sit through and, and do it. Anyways, that was my rant. Don't do that, marketers. Here's the rave. And so my, um, I think you know this, my son is really into comic books. My youngest son, Adam, right now. Yes, indeed. So his big, his, his favorite comic book right now is Deadpool. So he's... In, Oh, it's a great He's one. He's really super into oh, I Deadpool. Love Deadpool. So I'm talking with him, and I don't know anything about Deadpool, and I'm just trying to get an understanding, and I've got the one where he's, like, dressed up as... Should be careful. It gets a Deadpool gets I, a little a little as the as it gets on. It, yeah, it gets a I little, know. I'm a little bit not, yeah, a little little, little concerned yeah. about it here yeah. and there. Uh, absolutely, yeah. but um, so I'm going through and I'm trying to do what you know fathers do and and figure out what's going on and make sure I'm in the loop on all this stuff. And I go to the back and the back page is an advertisement for a comic called Road Force: Wrecked and Ruined, Part One of Six. So there's obviously <laughs> six issues of this, and it is a 
Um, it is a basically road for, and it says in little italics at the bottom. Road force protects the world from evil invasions on customized Harley Davidson motorcycles. So road road wow. force is a uh, is a brandscaping as as uh, Andrew Davis would call it, but it's a it's a Marvel custom comics production for Harley Davidson, and I was just like, that is fantastic. I know it. I'm talking to Adam about. It. I said, Adam, this is my industry. This is what this is what we do. This is part of it, and he's like, "Cool, Dad." Yeah, he didn't <laughs> he's care. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. He didn't I want to talk yeah, about Deadpool, care. but you know, I just thought yeah. that that was interesting. That and this is brand new, by the way, because this is the uh, this is the May issue, May 2014 issue. So they're just coming wow. out with that. And I just thought that was interesting. So so kudos and a rave to Harley Davidson for trying something a little bit different in the in the comic book space. Oh yeah, it'd be interesting to find out who did that and and see if they're you know see see the whole program behind it and how they're yeah. How but they're what's interesting it. it's really is the interesting. logo is well it's Harley Davidson and right below it it's Marvel Custom. So what it's yeah. interesting at least from what Adam tells me there's some characters on the ad here that are from other comic Marvel comic books. So they're they're able they must have been getting licensing rights to use some of those other characters, which is really cool. Sure. Well, it's you know it's a little bit of a native advertising play, right? I mean, when you think about it, you know the way. Anyway, it, it's it, it's whether or not it's you know Marvel coming out with it or whether it's uh, you know whether it's Harley Davidson coming out with it licensing Marvel. It's it's just fabulous either way. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of classic and marketing and all of this, it's time for this old marketing, the namesake for our show, where we talk about something that uh, is just this old marketing from a content marketing perspective. And this week, hat tip to Michael Weiss, actually, who's a good friend and family of CMI, who gave me this at the executive forum. He actually talked to me about this and said it would be a good idea for the show. And I went and looked it up. And sure enough, it really is. It's um, Martin Guitar. So if you don't know Martin Guitar, um, if any guitar players are out there, you will definitely know Martin Guitar. And for those of you who don't, Martin Guitar has been producing really the, some of the finest guitars out there for like 175 years, just, I mean, since the 1830s, I think. And they are pretty well recognized as, you know, from their acoustic guitar sets and just how beautiful they are and, um, and how hand, they're all handmade and, and just, I mean, sometimes they're, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a Martin guitar. They're, they're very, very special instruments. They're very high-end instruments, is, I guess, is the way to put it. And they've done something really interesting um, of late, which made me uh, go back in time and look at how they were actually doing it. And I think without even realizing it, they're doing some really interesting content marketing and this old marketing. They had a newsletter called their Sounding Board Newsletter, which has been published since 1996, actually, as a print um, and ultimately online newsletter where they were really talking about um, everything having to do with guitar enthusiasts. Um, so it wasn't just your standard, normal, ordinary guitar player like me um, who wouldn't get half of what was in there. It was truly about the way the guitars were made for aficionados of guitars and how they were played. And then they would also have a version of this that went to dealers and owners, etc. Uh, so this was started in 1996, and what they've been doing is actually integrating this with a new magazine that they launched just at the beginning of this year called the Journal of Acoustic Guitars, um, which is really a merging of that with this other program they have where they've opened up the museum um, at Martin in Pennsylvania, where their headquarters and the factory is. 
And so they're using that to draw people into this museum, which is the experience of the history of Martin Guitars. That has led them to actually having a complete traveling museum exhibit that is now actually, as we speak, at the Metropolitan Museum in New York um, being exhibited um, as the history of, of Martin Guitars from the 1840s up until today, which all comes back to how you can go get your personal Martin guitar and how it, you can actually have them create it for you. And I just thought it was a really fascinating look at how one platform became another and then sort of is integrated into other sort of more experiential platforms to create a complete buyer's experience for a very specific persona who is their very you know enthusiastic, uh, very specialist musician who who loves their instruments and i think a wonderful example oh i love that example and i love the fact that i think there's some recognition to the idea that if we have multiple touch points with our audience it makes them a more valuable customer and uh instead of just digital web mobile whatever we're thinking in-person experience the experience in print. Oh, and I didn't yeah. even. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't even mention that they've got. You know, they've they've taken those uh, that exhibit and made a book out of it. They now have. So they've got this beautiful coffee table book that has all of these pictures of Martin guitars, and they do events and just wonderful, wonderful. You know, stuff. just a side note as we close. But you and I are running into more and more historians within bigger brands that are really starting to recognize yeah, the right. need to tell these stories. And I mean, I talked with with somebody at Walmart. This was about six months ago, but that's that's her only job is to basically look at the history of the organization and try to bring out important stories and and tell them in the different uh, platforms that Walmart has. So it's just it's fascinating yeah. what's going on. Yeah, truly fascinating. Well, where are you going? What is you're, I'm going you're nowhere now? Yes, I I'm mean, going so. nowhere. Yeah, and <laughs> all is all is well. <laughs> no, and I'm super busy with the you know the. I mean, we're still crazy busy with what's going on. I mean, we had early bird end for content marketing world, lots of things to do, lots of new projects as you and I were talking about, but I am not traveling anywhere. I've got a, I've got a date in uh, Washington DC for an event in a couple of weeks. But other than that, I am home for the next three months and I'm super excited about That's that. Brilliant. Are you, are you traveling anywhere this brilliant. week? Oh, I'm, yeah, I am about, well, not this week, but uh, next week starts my Monster June. Um, I go to Omaha to speak at a wonderful American Marketing Association event there um, where I'm keynoting uh, their luncheon event and um, talking to all things wonderfully about content marketing. And then I am off to New York, then London, then Amsterdam for a two and a half week uh sort of marathon tour um, through clients' workshops, book launches, not my book launch. I'm actually helping a, an author launch her book um, in in uh, in Amsterdam. So I won't be back until the end of June. And then I'm actually hopefully going to take a week or so off for the July 4th holiday and my birthday. Well, it sounds so like since I, I cut my travel, you got double the travel. Yeah, well, <laughs> funny how that works. Somebody out, that, it? Funny yeah. that how yeah. that works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know yeah, how exactly. that works, but... Uh, all of a sudden, my email starts to go oh, up, too. <laughs> well, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And remember, if you want your question answered on the show, do tag us on Twitter at hashtag thisoldmarketing or send an email to thisoldmarketing at contentinstitute.com. This was episode number 29. And if you liked it, remember, we hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All those links are on the show notes available at thisoldmarketing.com. Remember, folks, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. 
We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. <laughs>